In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Daniel chapter 4 and 5 tonight. We live in a mad, 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 mad world. Anyone seen that movie? Some of you get that, yeah. Um, According to Daniel chapters 4 and 5, this is because pride... Pride creates this insanity within the human race and within the world. Babylon, which is where Daniel is, Israel was, um, the kingdom of Jerusalem had been conquered by the Babylonians for their sins and they were exiled, taken toward the kingdom of Babylon. And so you have a bunch of the people of God living in a pagan world, just like the church. We have a bunch of people of God living in the pagan world. And Daniel is a book of many things, part of which shows us how to survive Babylon. Are we going to become like Babylon? Are we going to remain faithful to the kingdom of God and as his people? So um, Babylon is built on pride. If actually you go back and consider the origins of Babylon, it's the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11. And there, the tower was built upon the premise of let us not be dispersed over the world. Let us make a name for ourselves and let us, something else, but they said let us three times. And it was this this source of pride. God comes down and visits and he creates confusion. Now, not to... um, Daniel did not want us to miss this. Back in chapter 1, he had actually referred to uh, the Jews being taken to the land of Shinar. And that's what Genesis 11 says was in the valley of Shinar, they built a tower named Babel. Um, In Babylon, we are taught how to be proud. We are not taught how to be humble. That is a foreign concept in Babylon. Think about it. As a child, you are taught early on how to uh, promote yourself, how to gain possessions, how to have power, and how to receive praise from others. This is what we are taught to do. Humility is not natural, and it is not the way of the world. But Christ teaches us a completely different way. You guys know Philippians 2, verse 5? Here's the Christian movement Babylon takes us upward, Christ takes us downward. Philippians 5, 2, verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which means this is your call. This is what we are to be like. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or held onto, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. So from God to servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It went all the way down to death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Here's what we see going on. In the world, in Babylon, we live on those escalate, uh, uh, escalating stairs, an escalator. I love those as, ki- as a kid, because you would just sit there and they would take you up. And then if you walked up them, 
If you tried in, to do your own effort, it would go up faster. And then you could also try to beat it by going down. I know, not totally a safe place to play, but all kids love it. Um, but Babylon is like an escalator. And it is carrying us up toward this idea of pride. You exalt yourself. And here's the thing. It is not just Babylon saying, here are the stairs, walk up them. Babylon is a system which is designed, if we just coast through life, if we just stand there, it will take us up. We will, by default, seek to promote ourselves and see ourselves as more important than other people. What the gospel shows us is that Christ came down. This isn't just something that, oh yeah, I can just be humble if I wish it. He made steps to come to us, to become a man, to become servant, to die, to die on a cross. And if we want to survive Babylon, we need humility, which means not that we just stop walking up the stairs. Humility means we intentionally go against the escalator and move downward. That's how we survive Babylon. Because Babylon is insanity with its pride. But humility will be our survival. So, here's what we see. Two instances of insanity from pride. Daniel chapter 4, we're going to see Nebuchadnezzar literally go insane. And in chapter 5, we're going to see Belshazzar, another one of the Babylonian kings, a little bit later, uh, have his own moment of insanity. So, let's take a look at it. Daniel chapter 4. Um. Verses 1 through 3 are an introduction to what's about to happen. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how many his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his domain endures from generation to generation. One of the first things we notice about Daniel 4 is that there is a shift in voice. No longer do we have this narrator commenting on what Daniel and the three are doing, but now we have Nebuchadnezzar himself is speaking in the first person. That's a shift. Now, he is telling us that I, basically, I have come to believe in the God of Israel. It's not an accident given the devotion that Daniel and his three companions gave to holiness, to fasting from Babylon's food so that they could face Babylon's flames. And in the fiery furnace, the three endured and King Nebuchadnezzar was moved. It's not an accident that at some point Nebuchadnezzar has now been ready to embrace the God of Israel. What's going to happen next is now he's going to tell us how he got to this point of believing in God. So here's my statement. I believe in the true God now. But then we're going to see what it took to get him there. There was one more step. He had to humble himself. So, now verse 4. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. And as I lay in bed, the fancies and visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. Does this sound familiar? Chapter 2, he had a dream. No one could interpret it. Daniel comes in and interprets it. Chapter 4, he's got another dream. He can't interpret it. None of his advisors can interpret it. 
Daniel's going to come in and interpret it. Remember, Babel, the Tower of Babel, is a place of confusion. The tongues are confused. No one could understand anything. We're seeing this replayed in Babylon. And who's going to bring clarity? The people of God, represented in Daniel, will bring clarity to the confusing insanity of Babylon's pride. Okay, so at last, in verse 8, Daniel came in before him, and um, he tells he tells Daniel his dream. And essentially, he sees this massive tree that extends from earth to heaven. And in it, the birds and the creatures find shelter, and there's fruit on the tree. But then, the tree is going to be cut down. And there will be just a stump. So, in... Um, In verse 13, he said, I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. And he proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip its leaves and scatter its fruit, and let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. So this shelter, this big tree, is now going to be destroyed, and now there's no more shelter. And, um, verse 15, But leave the stump, so it's not completely dead, leave the stump of its roots in the earth and bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. And let him be wet with the dew of heaven and let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones to the end that the living may know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. And so he pleads to Daniel, I see the spirit of God in you. Help me understand this dream. Now, Daniel is alarmed because he sees very clearly what this is. And so he says he's perturbed. He then proclaims, O king, may this be an interpretation for your enemies. What I'm about to say is not a reflection of what I think of you. I hope that this happens to your enemies. But then he lays out the interpretation. Nebuchadnezzar is the tree. He's the head of Babylon. And all the nations have sought refuge in him. But because um, of his pride, he's going to be chopped down. He's going to go insane for a period, live with the animals until he knows that it's the most high who establishes kings and has rule over the kingdoms of men. It's not you, Nebuchadnezzar, it's the most high. So after Daniel courageously gives the interpretation, he then says in verse 27, Daniel gives his advice to the king now. Verse 27, therefore, O king, let my counsel be accepted to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities, by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. So, Nebuchadnezzar is warned, humble yourself in the sight of God. Understand that he's the one who rules Babylon. He's the one who holds your prosperity in his hands. He's the one who set you up. Recognize him or you're going to be judged. Well, I would imagine that Nebuchadnezzar was scared and that he humbled himself right away. Oh, I am so sorry, God, Uh, blah, blah, blah. You do whatever you do when you're scared. 
I vow to you. You've ever done this? If you deliver me from this, I will. Um, but here's the thing is that humility is not something we achieve or accomplish. Humility is a path. And the moment we stop the path of humility, we have the escalators carried us up to pride. We never do humility and boom, got it. It's a practice. It's a continual downward descent because we in our nature continually want to lift ourselves up. So Nebuchadnezzar may have humbled himself, but he stopped. So 12 months later, this happens. Now I want you to notice it goes from Nebuchadnezzar speaking in the first person to now talking about Nebuchadnezzar in the third person. Verse 28. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar at the end of 12 months. See, he might have been humble for a little while, but pride crept back in. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar, and he was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. The insanity of pride corrupts our humanity. Nebuchadnezzar does not reflect a human at this point. He reflects a beast. And he is driven away. In fact, I couldn't help but think of the story of the prodigal son. Someone prayed it or mentioned it earlier, so appropriate just to mention. uh, That there the prodigal son, in his pride, wants the father's inheritance. And he squanders it. Nebuchadnezzar's got all this, and he squanders it. And then they're both made to live with animals. The prodigal with pigs, Nebuchadnezzar with the wild beasts. But both come to their senses and repent and are restored. And that's going to happen to Nebuchadnezzar. I want you to now notice. Notice how it started in the first person. I, Nebuchadnezzar, declare. All right? That's how chapter 4 started. It went to third person. Then Nebuchadnezzar was walking on his house. And a voice said, you will be judged. But now we go back in verse 34. We go back to the first person. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. The period of time ended. His reason returned. The insanity left. He became sane when he lifted his eyes to God. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom endures from all gen- from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand... Note that none can stay his hand. That's going to happen in chapter 5. None can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? 
And at the same time, my reason returned to me. I became human again. (laughs) And for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me and I was established in my kingdom and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven for all his works are right and his ways are just and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. That's what he learned. I can't help but notice how significant the shift from first person, third person, back to first person is. Nebuchadnezzar has a sense of dignity in the beginning. He has a sense of self. He's a person. He's a human. But then his pride leads him to insanity, to the point where he's no longer distinguishable. He doesn't have a sense of self anymore. He is dehumanized. He's animalized. He's a beast. And he no longer has a personhood. He's been stripped of the dignity of being made in the image of God because he no longer reflects the likeness of God. And it wasn't until he returned his gaze to God that his personhood was restored. Because this is what sin, and especially pride, does to us. is It is an insanity that corrupts our humanity. It makes us like the beasts of the field. I have a slightly lengthy quote. I just could not consolidate it. It is so good. So good. Bear with this. N.T. Wright describes what it might look like for a human to give themselves over to sin all the days of their life. And then what that might look like in eternity. If you've given yourself over to sin, here you go forever. Um, But you can't help but think of Nebuchadnezzar as I read this. He says, when a human being, when human beings give their heartfelt allegiance to and worship that which is not God, they progressively cease to reflect the image of God. One of the primary laws of human life is that you become like what you worship. What's more, You reflect what you worship not only back to the object itself, but also outward to the whole world around. Those who worship, here's some examples. Those who worship money increasingly define themselves in terms of money and increasingly treat people as creditors, debtors, partners, or customers rather than as human beings. Those who worship sex define themselves in terms of it, their preference, their practice, their past histories, and increasingly treat people as actual or potential sexual objects. Those who worship power define themselves in terms of it and treat other people as either collaborators, competitors, or pawns. These and many other forms of idolatry combine in a thousand ways, all of them damaging the image-bearing quality of the people concerned and of those whose lives they touch. My suggestion is that it is possible for human beings so to continue down this road, so to refuse all whisperings of good news, all glimmers of the true light, all promptings to turn and go the other way, all signposts to the love of God, that after death they become at last, by their own effective choice, 
beings that once were human, but now are not. Creatures that have ceased to bear the divine image at all. Now, this is Nebuchadnezzar. In worshiping and glorifying his might and what he's accomplished with the works of his hands, he has lost his humanity. What it means to be human is to be made in the image of God. And according to Genesis, what it means to be made in the image of God is to be the priest of creation, reflecting God's gifts that he gives to us back to him and to the creation. That's what Nebuchadnezzar is supposed to do. If God has given me this great glory, I give it back to him. I lead my kingdom to give him glory. That's how he's restored. Did you notice? My reason returned to me in verse 34 when I lifted my eyes to heaven and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. What it means to be human is to receive God's blessings, to receive his gifts, to receive everything he provides, and to give it back in thanksgiving and blessing. That's what makes us human. It's a giving, it's a receiving, it's a reciprocal relationship of receiving God's life and giving him our life. That's what makes us the image of God. When we stop that connection, we cut ourselves off from life and we slowly die and we begin to live more and more like the beasts of the field. This is why pride leads us to insanity. The most sane thing, the most human thing a person can do is praise God. That's what we're made to do. do you know, that's what's happening in the triune life of God right now. The Father and the Son are praising the Spirit. The Spirit and the Son are praising the Father. And I don't remember which ones I've said now, but the other two are praising the other one. Um, this is reciprocally happening, and this is why there's fullness and eternal life in the divine trinity. And when we cut this off, we cut ourselves off from our participation in his life. But Nebuchadnezzar thankfully, repented. Belshazzar, however, does not. So like the tale of the prodigal son, there are two sons. Do you want to be the one that repents or do you want to be the one that does not in arrogance? You have an option. Are we going to be King Nebuchadnezzar or are we going to be King Belshazzar? So here we go in chapter 5. We've gone forward. Babylon, after Nebuchadnezzar, there's a couple of chaotic king situations. Uh, sons were killed by... So, some men married the daughters of Nebuchadnezzar, and then they killed the, tr- the actual sons that were reigning, so that, you know, um, the daughters would be like, my husband's now the king. And it happened. It actually happened a couple times until Nebuchadnezzar, who, by the way, is a son-in-law. Nebuchadnezzar's now... I'm sorry, not Neb- uh, Belshazzar. Belshazzar is the son-in-law of Nebuchadnezzar. He's now reigning... He's actually co-reigning. His father's still alive. Um, so we're in the year 539 BC. So Daniel's actually quite old. Because remember, the book starts in 605? Yeah, 605 BC. So we've actually flown forward the entire 70-year captivity in Babylon. We're at the very end. You know, in 539 BC, what happens? Babylon falls in one night, and Persia takes over. That happens right now. So here we are. Chapter 5, verse 1. Um, he, sorry, Belshazzar knew about what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel's going to say this in the middle of chapter 5. He's going to say, you know what happened to Nebuchadnezzar, how he was humbled and how he's restored, but you chose not to be humbled. Belshazzar is therefore acting in defiance. This is not ignorance. He's acting in defiance against the God whom he knew 
Nebuchadnezzar had worshipped, his father-in-law. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. So far, okay, it's, it's just a party. I mean, that happens, right? And it's not necessarily sinful to be doing this, but it gets worse. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought and that the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Okay, here's what's going on. This very night, the Persians have besieged Babylon. They're under siege. They know the Persians are coming in. They're choking them. They've cut off some other cities in Babylon. They know what's up. They're camped out right outside. But Babylon was so confident in the walls of its city, the greatest walls ever built up to that time, that no kingdom can, can, can scale the walls and come into us. But then they're also confident that they're not going to be starved to death because Babylon had hoarded enough resources inside the city to feed the city for 20 years. So basically, in their mind, the Persians just have to sit out there for 20 years, and I doubt they're going to do that. They'll give up. So they're feasting while they're besieged. There's something wrong here. This is a moment when we see in Israel, this would, this is where Israel would call for a fast and humble themselves before God. But here Belshazzar said, the great Babylon my father built, this is it. Like, this is all we need. We are safe. We are secure. So they're feasting when they should be fasting. Uh, then notice that he's drinking judgment upon himself. Oh, this is such a great party. Let's bring in Israel's cheap little God that we conquered. Let's bring in his cups. And so now they're going to bring in the cups from the temple itself. And in verse 3, Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives, his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Might have been okay had they praised Yahweh. But no. Here's what's happening. By bringing the vessels of the temple of God into his palace, he has essentially transformed his palace into God's temple. He has invited the God of Israel, the God of the burning bush, the I am who I am, who brings holy ground with him. He has invited this dangerous fire into his palace. And he's going to pay. This is what pride, pride's insanity We forget who God is when pride takes over the heart. And so he's going to be completely surprised. But I want to call your attention to Jeremiah chapter 25, because Jeremiah talked about all this. And so this is becoming the fulfillment. Jeremiah 25, um, you can listen or turn over there. Jeremiah's to your left a little bit, a couple books. In Jeremiah 25 verse 11, uh, by the way, he's in debate with the prophets, Jeremiah. The prophets are saying, oh, the vessels of the Lord, the cups of the temple, they're going to come back in two years. And Jeremiah's like, no, it's not going to be two years. It's going to be 70 years. So Jeremiah, obviously, is the winner in that debate. Um, but then this is what he says in Jeremiah 25, verse 11. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. So guess what, Israel? We're going into exile for 70 years. Well, he was right, because we see Daniel is in exile. Um, Verse 12. But then after 70 years are completed, 
I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. So don't worry, God's going to win in the end. Babylon's an instrument, but Babylon will not humble themselves, so they will be judged. Okay, so we know that that's going to happen tonight in Daniel chapter 5. But then, a few verses down, Jeremiah says this in verse 15. Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Jeremiah, take from my hand this cup of wine of wrath. And make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I am sending among them. So Jeremiah says, I took the cup from the Lord's hand and made all the nations to whom the Lord sent me to drink it. Jerusalem, the cities of Judah, its kings and officials, to make them a desolation and a waste, a hissing and a curse as it is to this day. Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and his servants and officials, all his people, and all the mixed tribes among them, and all the kingdoms of the land of Uz, and the kings of the land of the Philistines, that's Ashkan, Gaza, uh, Ekron, and the remnant of Ashdod, Edom, Moab, the sons of Ammon, all the kings of Tyre, all the kings of Sidon, and the kings of the coastland across the sea, Dedan, Tima, Buzz, and all who cut the corners of their hair, all the kings of Arabia, and all the kings of the mixed tribes who dwell in the desert, all the kings of Zimri, and all the kings of Elam, and all the kings of Media, all the kings of the north, far and near, one after another and all the kingdoms of the world that are on the face of the earth. Pause. Very thoroughly, Jeremiah is handing this cup of wine to every nation. And after them, the king of Babylon shall drink. Who gets the last swig of this cup? The king of Babylon. Little does he know as he's calling out, the vessels from the temple of the Lord and drinking wine from them that he is fulfilling to a literal degree Jeremiah's prophecy. He is the last to drink from this cup of judgment. So Babylon's turn to drink has come and the hand appears in verse 5. Immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote, and the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. Some people have suggested that means he lost all control of his internal organs, if you know what I mean. And he called loudly for all the wise men to interpret what's happening. And of course, surprise, it's Babylon. It's a place of confusion. Pride doesn't bring clarity. It brings obscurity. No one can interpret the writing on the wall, even though it's in their language. Hmm. Um, the hand appears. This is so cool. Uh, the Babylonians would actually chop off the right hand of those who were killed in battle as a way of counting casualties. Well, here God's like, yeah, you think you killed me, but my hand is still alive, <laughs> and it's working well. You can lop off my body. The hand's going to work fine. And it's almost a resurrection illusion, isn't it? Um, but there he is with his hand. And now here's the other thing. Nebuchadnezzar, uh, uh, Belshazzar, loses himself. This is a state of, he's, he's no longer human, at least in the dignified sense. He's like, a, he, he's just lost himself. And, and, and this is because he saw 
the fingers of God. He hasn't even seen his backside like Moses saw or anything close to the glory of him. Can you imagine? See, pride so underestimates the glory of God and so elevates humanity that we are startled when we see even his shadow because we forget we've deluded ourselves. But also what's cool is God's telling his people right here, this is a message of hope, that even in Babylon, they can try to cut me out of your schools, they can try to cut me out of uh, the COVID situation, cut out the churches, and they can try to cut me out everywhere they want, but my hand is still at work. And I am willing to let my hand be severed if it means I get to go with my people to the land of Babylon. I will go with them, and my hand even there will be there. Belshazzar is absolutely beside himself. So no one can make sense of this because it's the Tower of Babel all over again. By the way, the Tower of Babel, remember God said, let us go down and see what they're doing. Here the hand has come down to see what they're doing. It's the Tower of Babel. They're all confused. Daniel comes in to bring clarity. And brothers and sisters, this is our moment. We exist to bring clarity, but not in an arrogant way. Daniel doesn't come in like, barging in. I knew this would happen. He just, he has to be invited. They're asking him for clarity because they see in the way Daniel and the three had lived throughout this time in Babylon, that there's something clear about, there's a sanity possessed in these people. And the insanity wants to know about it. They're brought in, Daniel's brought in. He brings clarity. Um, So there's a, I'm going to pass over the section. Daniel's reminding Belshazzar um, all about you should have known about Nebuchadnezzar's humiliation. Your humiliation's here, bad boy. It's here. And then Daniel says this in verse 20. Well, I might as well just put it in at verse 22. And you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of this house have been brought in before you. And you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them. <clears throat> See Jeremiah 25. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold and bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know. See this insanity, right? You become like what you worship. Remember? We've read that from N.T., right? And the Bible says that too, in Psalm 115, particularly. And, uh, oh, do not see... Or hear or know, but the God in whose hand, you saw that hand, Bell, you saw that, and the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. So then from his presence, the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Many, many, tekel, parson. It's Aramaic. This is the interpretation of the matter. Many. God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Many means numbered. Um, Tekel. It means weighed. So Daniel says, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. There's no substance to you. You're too light. Verse 28. Paris, which means divide. Paris, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Going back to the prodigal son, by the way, uh, the son demanded, Father, divide our inheritance and give me my portion. So here, the inheritance of, of Babylon is being divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. 
Then Belshazzar gave the command, he doesn't get it, <laughs> to clothe Daniel in purple. What does it matter? It's all over tonight. What does it matter to clothe Daniel in purple and put the chain around his neck and proclaim that he should be made the third ruler in the kingdom? Daniel's like, okay, it'll be fun for a couple hours, I guess. <laughs> then verse 30, that very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. And Darius, the Mede, received the kingdom, being about 60 years old. Um, what had happened was, the Persians diverted. Babylon was so secure because they had all this wheat in their city stored up for 20 years, but they also had water. Uh, the, the Euphrates River ran through the city. So what the Persian general, Cyrus, uh, Darius becomes the king, but Cyrus was the general, he diverts the river into a, a lake down the road a bit. And so the riverbed dries up, and they're able just to walk under the walls. This, this of course, is such a beautiful picture of how Babylon thought, no one can steal our might. They can't come up over our walls. But see, what we, and the, what we can often forget and what the world does not see is that that's not how God's coming to us. He's not climbing over our fortresses. He's coming down as a servant, as a slave, to being killed on a cross. He went under the wall. And this is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians one or two, um, that even the dark powers could not perceive the king of glory. He was so disguised because there's no way God would humble himself like that. It's because the devil can't understand humility. He does not know how to go down. He built the escalator. He only knows how to ride it up. And the surprise. So here, Belshazzar, to finish chapter five here, uh, he rides the escalator all the way to the top. And you know what he found was at the top of the escalator? Nothing, just a big abyss to fall down into. That's what's at the top of the escalator. That's the insanity of pride. It leads us up to our fall. So this is um, where we must, in order to survive Babylon, we must learn to descend this escalator. We want to be like Nebuchadnezzar and humble ourselves, not like Belshazzar and defy God. So if we're to survive Babylon's insanity we need humility um so remember this doesn't happen on accident you don't just ride through the christian life say i'm just not going to be proud well the escalator keeps moving so that means we must move but we must move downward and even if you're too slow and all you can do is stay in the same position at least the escalator isn't moving you upward But the steps of humility are meant to take us lower and lower and lower and the lower we go the closer we get to Christ, who went all the way down, even to Hades, if we accept the Apostles' Creed, which says so. Um, that's where we go. Now, what is humility exactly? It's a hard one because sometimes what we do is, oh, be humble. Okay, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have really bad self-esteem. I'm going to hate myself. I'm dirt. I'm a loser. That's not humility either. Um, so let's just let's look at a positive way of describing humility. St. Basil the Great, that great 4th century uh, church father, he said that virtue, uh, humility, is the virtue of virtues. Of all of them, this is the one. David described humility as 
having a broken spirit. This is the part of Psalm 51 we don't pray because it's a longer psalm. But toward the end of Psalm 51, he prays, um, You do not delight in sacrifice and offerings. You delight in a broken spirit. A broken and humbled heart you will not spurn, O God. That's humility. Broken spirit. Jesus described humility as poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the virtue of virtues because Christ himself, the first words of the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, his virtues, which define his character, the first one, the way to enter the rest, he said, was to be poor in spirit. What does that mean? It means that I come before God and recognize that, God, I actually don't really have anything to give you. I have nothing to give you. Everything that I have to give you was already yours. I'm only returning to you what you've given to me. Even down to, as we were told in chapter 5, verse 23, even down to our very breath is in his hand. I can return every breath to him and I can keep doing that. And I'm still completely impoverished because that's his breath given to me. I don't make my body breathe. I can't decide when the breath goes and when it comes. It's not in my hands. This is what it means to be poor in spirit. It's to recognize that we have nothing to bring before him. He's everything. And we need his everything because we have nothing. We're bankrupt. We're absolutely impoverished before him. Which is another reason why, we know we talked about um, months ago in our prayer series, prostrations have been a historical norm for Christians because we recognize in prayer that we can't go lower than our faces to the ground because this is where we are. We are impoverished before him. And we plead that he will fill us up. This is where humility starts. This is what it looks like. That's poor in spirit. So, um, humility is first. I want to I describe two things about humility. It's first an honesty. It's an honesty about ourselves before God. So here's an example. I remember this was really helpful for me um, when I was a worship leader. Um, uh, this one guy, I think it was actually Tim Chaddock maybe. Was, this was years ago. He was like, okay, so this is what humility does not look like. It does not look like saying, woe is me, I'm such a terrible guitarist. I sing horribly. Because actually what happens is the person you're talking to is just going to feel obligated to say, no, you're not. You're awesome. Actually, I want to learn how to sing from you. And then what actually ends up happening is you're not being humble at all. You were fishing for confidence. <laughs> it's about being honest. It's about recognizing that God's given me this gift. I don't have to boast about that. He's given it to me. I don't have to demean it. I'm honest about this treasure he's given me, but realize that the treasure isn't great because I did something about it. It's great because he did something about it. Um, That's being honest about ourselves before God. So being honest with ourselves, humility, you you probably have heard this before. It's it's pretty well known that humility comes from the word hummus. Well, not humus. It's probably the right word to say it. Humus, which (laughs) I love hummus. Um, Humus is our our Latin base for earth, for dirt, for dust. And this is what humility actually means. It's to bring yourself to the dust. Again, like a prostration. We're down as low as we can go. That's where, that's the poor in spirit posture. That's being honest about ourselves before God. Now, honest with ourselves before God is important because I can be honest with myself before Tyler. 
And I can be like, well, I'm better than Tyler at a lot of things. I don't forget salt in my pitas when I bake them, and I don't, uh, I could go down the list about things that I'm better than Tyler at. Um, <laughs> of course, if we flip the script, he could just go much longer than me about what he's better at. But that's not being honest about myself before God. That's being honest about myself before my fellow humans. That's not humility. That actually leads to pride because I'm always going to look for the people that I'm better at things then so that I can feel better about myself. The escalator is built into us. We're always going to move that way. It's about learning to completely stop comparing ourselves to each other. The status of my sin or my progress or my spirituality compared to everyone else around me means nothing. It literally means nothing. You can be the holiest person here. You can have visions and work miracles. And guess what? If you are honest about yourself before God, you are infinitely short of the infinite being. Right? If I can become Moses, Elijah, and Job all put together into one supercharged human, I am still infinitely shy of who my creator is. And that's what it means to be honest about ourselves before God, is that I have sinned against an infinite being. Jonathan Edwards puts it this way. I've sinned against an infinite being, which means I deserve an infinite punishment. That's where we are. But despair not, because that's only one side of the honesty equation. The second side of the honesty equation is that, yes, we're dust. Yes, we're dirt. Yes, we're poor. But as we opened up tonight's message... Christ became all those things. Christ became poor. Christ emptied himself. Christ came to the dirt, to the dust. He became that dust so that he could raise it up from its impoverished condition. Christ was resurrected as dust. Christ ascended into heaven at the right hand of God as dust. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, one of the greatest sections of all of Scripture. Ephesians itself is the greatest section of all of Scripture. That's another thing. Um, he says, but God, who is rich in mercy, because of the love with which he loved us, when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive, by, by, he made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So, yes, I'm dirt. I'm dirty. But I'm also glory. That is being honest with yourself before God. And this isn't because I'm amazing. It's because he's amazing. That's where we go. So we don't despair in our humility. That's despair. And that's remember, that was one of the passions we talked about back at Lent. Um, we, um, we celebrate, we thank him, and we rejoice in the inconceivable promise that he is making us into little Christs to rule and reign with him. That, may, that makes you humble just thinking about that. So humility is about being honest um, about ourselves before God. But the second, humility is, and I, I, uh, I'm totally borrowing this from, um, from a, a monk in Greece. Um, he says that humility is a divine magnet attracting God's spirit. It's a magnet. Like, in other words, God cannot help but draw near to the humble. God is attracted to the humble, the poor in spirit. That's where he goes. Because God, remember, moves down. And as we go down, there we find God. Babylon's a triangle going up. Christ is a triangle going down. And that's where we find the pinnacle, as we move down with him. 
James 4, verse 6, 1 Peter 5, verse 5, both. So they both say this. That's pretty important if two authors are saying it. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Opposes. If this is the opposite. Flip the magnet the other way. Pride is... <laughs> you you want to drive the Holy Spirit's work out of your life? Be proud. You will become a mad animal. But he gives grace to the humble. He So this is the idea. And I love Tyler introduced confession tonight um, with this, I, this concept of emptying so that we could be filled. Because this is what it is. Humility is an emptying of our inflated selves so that we can be filled with the real substance of God's spirit and his grace. That's the beautiful thing of humility. So, to summarize this, oh, one more thing. Um, Humility is also a divine magnet um, because it puts us beneath the devil. Kind of alluded to this with the whole undermining the wall in Babylon. But, like, the devil doesn't know how to go down. So, humility can put us underneath his reach. He can't touch the humble person. He can't get down there. And if you want to be... Um, a humble person is an unhurtable person. Right? Injury and insult doesn't hurt the humble person. Because you're beneath those things. In a literal and kind of cool way. You're beneath those. Like Sometimes like the world says, be above all that. <laughs> I can't listen to your insults because you're too low for me. That's not what we're saying here. Your insults don't hurt me because I've already self-condemned myself. Like, there's nothing you can say to me that I'm not aware of. So, this is the idea that humility brings us down so we're unhurt. Like, remember how 1 Corinthians 13 says, love is not offended. Because love takes a humble posture. So we are dirty, but Christ has bestowed upon us great glory. We remember what we deserve, but we rejoice without despair. Because we remember what he's doing. Okay, so let's close this out with three necessary steps toward humility, or three necessary steps downward. <laughs> um, these are, I mean, you've probably come up with others, but these are three I found very helpful in my life. So three, uh, starting from the simplest steps to the harder steps. First, get in the practice of giving thanks and praise. That is what Nebuchadnezzar does in 4 verse 34. That is what um, Daniel encouraged Belshazzar to do in 5 verse 23. Remember the God who gave you breath. The first steps toward humility start with thanksgiving. We thank him for what he's done, for what he's given. And suddenly I'm stripped of realizing, oh yeah, I didn't actually do that for myself. And this isn't here because I'm awesome. It's here because he's awesome. Thanksgiving and praise is where we start. And here's another thing that you can do. You can add to your Thanksgiving, thank you for my family, thank you for my wife, thank you for, you know, you, you could go on, all these things you're specifically thankful for, and after each one, say, thank you for this, for which I am unworthy. Suddenly, everything in our lives is a grace. That's one step toward humility. A second step is repentance and confession. We see Nebuchadnezzar do this. He repented. Notice he, it said that he came to his reason when he turned his eyes to God. We lose insanity and return to sanity when we acknowledge him and we're honest about ourselves before him. This is what confession and repentance are meant to do. It's that time when we look honestly at the fact that I might have done pretty good this week, but I'm still, I am still very far. I am not God. 
So repentance and confession reminds us that we are saved by God's grace and not by our awesomeness. And then third step toward humility. So I, by the way, of course, I'd encourage you Get in the practice of thanksgiving and confession on a regular basis. This is not a Sunday night thing. This is a moment-by-moment occurrence that keeps us moving downward. Okay, step number three. Um, Obedience and listening. It's hard for us to obey because we're proud. I'm not doing what you told me to do. I'll figure this out myself. Uh, sadly, we do this in the church all the time. Um, we don't, you know where we go first um, when we have problems? Most of us have a pastor who's not me. We have Pastor Google. <laughs> we want to figure out our stuff on our own. Because here's the beautiful thing about Google is we can sift through the information we like and don't like. But if you receive from a mentor, a parent, a pastor, an elder, if you receive spiritual guidance from them, you might actually have to humble yourself and take someone else's advice. They might say something you don't like. This, I know, I'm talking about old school Christianity because this is how they used to do things. We're, we're so far today. Um, but this is a humble step. We've taken the escalator, I think, a little too high. But granted, granted, and be cautious, some pastors are a little high on that scale themselves. I wouldn't necessarily seek spiritual um, guidance from them. So there's obedience in all authorities in our lives. Um, sadly, we saw a lot of arrogance among a lot of Christians during the COVID season. And I mean, I hated masks too. But we saw, we saw some people, we saw some hearts saying, I know better than this. And actually, maybe you did, because there are some good signs that masks were harmful, too. I, I'm sorry, I'm going down a road I shouldn't go down. Um, this is, I'm digging myself out now. But um, my point is, um, there are times when simply we just look at each other and say, you're worth more than what I think. I will stoop down. And um, listening. So another way we can practice walking down the escalator is start listening to people. Stop telling us your opinion about everything. Opinions are proof that you're proud. And so start receiving from other people. We have to get in the habit, and I'm so bad at this, um, but I remember my friend told me this a long time ago, and he said, I make it a point that in every room I enter to assume that everybody in this room is better than me at something, and it's my job to find out what that is. That, of course, requires a lot of listening, getting to know someone, shutting your mouth, and letting them have the stage for a change. But these are some simple ways that we can descend down the escalator. So, brothers and sisters, let's not ride Babylon's escalator of pride. Let's not fall into the insanity of pride, but let's follow the path of Christ and through humility we will survive Babylon. We will see it fall and the kingdom of God emerge.